testing. Testing. Ooh, check one, way, check one. That's way better. Now I feel like a real radio MC with these over-the-ear headphones. Got the smooth voice of Angelo coming through the ears. Oof. Oof. Mm. Nice. Call me Joe Brogan on the weekends. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> on the weekends. <laughs> uh, side gig. Side gig. Side gig. Yeah, that's, I shave my head every week. Every, every uh, <laughs> Thursday night. That's miraculous. Then you get those luscious locks that come back in. Every time. Every time. I saw that movie. Uh, have you guys ever seen Death Becomes Her? It's like an old school film. With like Meryl Streep. No, I really? definitely think I have. Yeah. That's a crazy movie. <laughs> hmm. I run that. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> So far, you got uh, like six minutes of stunning content. Yeah, this should definitely. <laughs> oh, yeah. You should keep all this. This is this is the outtakes. <laughs> save, save the best part for the first part. Yeah, <laughs> something, something like that. Save the best part for uh, nothing. Get it all out. Boom! Boom! Shaka! Zippity doodle, zippity day. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Okay, is Anchor still censoring me, or am I fine? You are okay. back in. I hear you. Oh, amazing. Yeah, hi, Trang. Oh. Hi, Corbin. You just didn't say hi back to me for, like, the last five minutes. <laughs> yeah, I forgive you now. I had a grudge against you, but we're cool now. Trang, now you're, like... Can you... Talk closer to the microphone, maybe. You're still like, I feel like I'm gonna struggle to maintain the conversation with your current volume. Oh, wow. Okay, let me just like scream. Can you guys hear me now? This is like the loudest talking yeah. voice I can do. That's perfect. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yay. Sweet. Okay, fam. Um, and we're on in 15. Take your last breath. <coughs> Any last final words? Oh no, brown cow. Quiet on the set. And we're live. This is Miss Radio. I'm your host, Angelo Gonzalez. And today we are going to be discussing a incredible project that is happening here in uh, Monterey, California. And believe it or not, folks, uh, we have with us three outstanding uh, graduate students by the names of Lawrence Garber, Corbin Panterad. You have to help me on the pronunciation. <laughs> Panterad, <laughs> you're almost there. Panterad and Trang Trin. Nice. And um, yeah, so without further ado, um, what we're going to be talking about today is this project called Developing Affordable Multifamily housing in Monterey, California, an economic case for building electrification and walk reclamation. So a little bit about this study. Uh, it was put together uh, this past spring semester uh, as an effort to see about the feasibility of several scenarios here in an apartment complex to create a proposed net zero affordable apartment complex 
using highly efficient reclaimed water, as well as uh, all electric appliances and uh, solar energy uh, on, on the roofing. So what we would like to see um, is, a, is a push. And what we have seen through California's uh, public policy initiatives uh, has been to align these environmental, social, and economic benefits of including these uh, tenants that uh, we would like to see on a local scale here in Monterey. So um, without further ado, uh, I'm just going to be asking a series of questions to kind of gauge our, our uh, participants here today, um, students that have spent a lot of time on this, on this sustainable housing project um, to see about the feasibility. And, uh, you know, just to start off, uh, I want to go around the room um, I guess we'll start with Trang and work our way, uh, Lawrence and then Corbin, uh, to follow. Just to kind of get an idea of what were your primary influences for coming together and like working on a project like this? Um, yeah, so actually for this question, I only have like a really brief answer because I was actually new to all of this work if it wasn't for Corbin. Um, so we were in a class together, um, a project that has to have sustainability um, dimension to it and calculate the financiality of that versus like a business as usual case where there's not as much of a regard for um, sustainable values. Well, I hate to talk over her, but since she did pull me in, I guess it's pretty logical for me to pick up the talking stick um yeah (laughs) so this began as a continuation of an earlier project that i was working on in a different class um in the semester before um and that was actually looking at sustainable housing but for the perspective of miss and building a sustainable um uh, dormitory situation here in Monterey. And it was a very like a uh, broad overview of these are the elements that we should consider. Um, so that would be net zero energy and water efficiency, because those are such huge issues on the uh, Monterey Peninsula. You know, all construction is defined by how much water is available. And we incorporated that into this project as well. Um, and then it was also focusing on the needs of the community here, what Monterey is expecting and what is sustainable in their eyes um, to have this new development. And I focused on uh, biophilic design as well to help um, foster a spirit of community and to incorporate design aspects that are going to make uh, dormitory housing feel a lot less like a terrible hollowed out apartment complex, which is how some dorms I've experienced felt like, and more like a community of people. Um, And biophilic design, by the way, it just means the love of nature. So it's bringing natural elements that everyone here loves and appreciates and is actually great for your health and creative capacities and bringing that inside on a daily basis. Does that mean big windows? Yeah, you know, um, (laughs) it's as simple as big windows looking out into greenery or an ocean view, like uh, Lawrence was talking about for that swanky new apartment he might get into (laughs) soon. Fingers crossed. Um, (laughs) But it's also with bringing plants inside. Um, It's 
with having design elements where you place um, where people are going to be sitting and hanging out slightly on an elevated position. So it mimics um, a hilltop and it looks out over um, unnatural elements um, and patterns that aren't cookie cutter shapes that you would see in nature because it has to work to understand what it's perceiving just like when you're looking at a rock wall instead of a flat cafeteria wall. Mm. Mm. That's pretty neat. I like that. Um, Lawrence, just to get your perspective on how you hopped in on this project. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Angelo. And thanks to Miss Radio for uh, having us on. Corbin, I feel like this is opening up a whole new world of opportunity for you know, us to expand on our project, um, incorporating some of those design elements, because um, that sounds really exciting. And especially because we live in Monterey, which has just such incredible natural beauty. Uh, yeah, man, let's make it out. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. You know, it would almost be a shame to not include those elements in a, in a building. But as far as to the question of how I came um, to be on board with this project, uh, you know, like Trang and Corbin said, it was it was for this financial management class. Um, and it also coincided for me with um, me starting an internship at the Association of Monterey Bay Area Governments. Um, and that's a regional government entity entity here in the Monterey Bay area that um, services the Santa Cruz, Monterey, and San Benito counties and the jurisdictions within. Um, so I've been doing some um, energy efficiency and climate policy work um, with AMBAG. And so as we were kind of throwing around um, ideas of what to do for this project, Corbin seemed super excited about, you know, the previous experience that he had um, bringing to the table um, and I was just kind of starting to scratch the surface of um, all the really ex exciting stuff that's happening in, within the built environment um, energy efficiency space um, in California. And um, I'm hoping we can, you know, touch on some of these topics later. But the idea of all electric um, and getting rid of natural gas was actually really new to me. And now um, the more I read on it, the more it just makes so much sense. Um, so really coming, you know, with Corbin's previous experience and then the the combination of that um, and, and me being, having an internship that really intersected with energy efficiency um, made for the, the project to be really exciting. Wow. Yeah, I can I can I can definitely hear the synergy, you know, when you guys are having that conversation about energy, um, just just the overall layout of, of the building itself. Um, and then, you know, for our folks listening at home, uh, one thing that I was kind of curious about, and I would hope to roll out some definitions and better understanding uh, of, of some of these um, these uh, these words, these phrases that are built into what y'all are studying as international environmental um, policymakers. Uh, so, for instance, something like net zero energy, what does that mean in the context of uh, housing? Yeah, um, I can take this one. Um, you know, it's it's uh, the way that I think about this, um, and I, I appreciate, uh, Angela, that you asked this question, but because I think oftentimes, particularly in the green energy space, you know, you, you throw around terms often, but, um, you know, obviously the definition of those terms is really important. Um, and so the, the case with net zero, um, you know, the word net involves some sort of, um, of subtraction or some sort of flow where if you can imagine a building um, as a system, you know, 
the building um, typically in a traditional building um, residents or you know if a business uses the building they would be you know consuming energy they'd be using energy in the form of electricity um, uh, and as well as natural gas um, if the the building is is piped with natural gas um, and in the case of um, one of our analyses where we um, had solar power um, on the building to you know to provide power so that and in that case you have an inflow of energy so the or the building is is generating energy um, as well as you know the um, the folks who are living in the building obviously using the energy so the idea being not wanting to add any carbon emissions to the grid if you have net zero um, the inflow minus the outflow uh, equals zero and if y'all Tranger Corbin, you can tap in here to um, add to that if you want. Sure. Yeah. So in really broad st strokes, right, we're just saying with net zero that the building produces as much energy as it consumes in a given year. It produces as much as it as it consumes, you say? Right. And what's cool about that, too, is, you know, like um, in the northern hemisphere, you get the most sun in the summertime. And then in the winter, you know, the way the orientation of the earth is, you get the least in the winter. So even if you're consuming more energy from outside sources in the winter, if you produce more in the summertime, then you can still balance out and be net zero. You don't have to be 100% isolated and only run off the electricity you produce. Okay, okay. And then um, part of, you know, seeing the viability of this study and, and the feasibility of it, um, you know, one thing that comes to mind is the stakeholders that are that are involved in terms of investing in a, a future development project like like this. Um, and just for our listeners, one thing that was coming up uh, a lot were um, the acronyms NPV and IRR. And why might that be important to note for an investment project like this? Yeah, for sure. So the question, you know, asking what is... Um net present value mean and internal rate of return. Um, and to be honest, the concept of net present value is something that before I came to miss, I was like, how have I gotten through an entire undergraduate education, uh, you know, in several years as a professional and not having even come across the concept of net present value? Because um, in the environmental policy space, it's really kind of, well, in, in finance particularly, it's, it's a really core principle um, and it's essentially um, the idea that money is worth more in your pocket now um, than it is in the future due to its potential earning capacity. So you can imagine, you know, throwing your money in a savings account, um, which today will earn you basically pennies. But historically, obviously, savings rates have been have been much higher. Um, or you can imagine putting your money in the stock market. Um, so your money has earning potential going forward. Um, so that means the more money you have now, the more money, you know, you could make. So um, any business that generates a cash flow, um, you, as a finance person, what you do is um, you predict out what those cash flows are going to be, wh what they're going to be um, using, you know, standard accounting practices. Um, and the net present value allows you to look at all of those projected future cash flows um, and bring that back and bring those cash flows back to their present value. So essentially, um, it allows you to make an investment decision right now in the present um, 
based on all the information that you have, and it allows you to um, factor in the time value um, of money. Um, and there's some other stuff that goes along with it. Uh, not other stuff. Another sort of core um, idea around, around this is the idea of a discount rate. So your net present value um, is a function of, of what your discount rate is, what, what you choose, um, as well as how many years out you go. And so there's a whole discussion of which discount rate to use um, that we could get into. Um, and so, so that's kind of a quick and dirty uh, explanation of net present value. Um, and please, y'all jump in to, to add to that. Yeah, I, I mean. I think we really need to add. You kind of did it there. <laughs> yeah, part of part of what I, I was trying to make sense of were those two terms just because I know as as a potential investor um, and highlighting the study, you guys documented not only uh, the proposed, you know, scenario that you guys were shooting for with all electric, solar paneled, 100 percent affordable housing. Uh, but you also did a great job in in, in providing the alternative three scenarios. So if, if one of you guys want to just kind of break that down in terms of what you guys were seeing uh, on cost scale um, and, and what makes the proposed scenario so lucrative. So I'm an investor and you've just given me this report. Um, I guess let's run down those scenarios, right? Because that's what it comes down to, whether we use natural gas versus electricity or uh, solar panel or not, 20% the minimum on affordable housing or 100% the maximum. Uh, these, are, these are real public policy uh, moves happening in, in, in um, the private sphere. So this is a very dynamic situation you guys are presenting. Um, what what were your thoughts going through um, before you played out the scenarios and then after? Let's start off with that. Sure. Okay. So the scenarios that we are trying to showcase here, right, is if you're a developer, you have this plot of land, you're going to uh, build an apartment complex on it no matter what, because that's zoned for multifamily. You think you can make a buck here. Um, so you have the lands now, what do you do with it? So the first scenario that we have is business as usual. So with that, you're going to, uh, maybe have gas, maybe electric, maybe you don't know about electric. So we'll just say, okay, you go with gas. So with that, you have to pay for the, uh, piping of gas, which is, you know, very expensive. And then you build the amount of units in this case for what we looked at, it was 58 units. That, and that 58 units is determined by the number of acre feet available for the property. And this is a super weird thing that is very specific to Monterey is that um, you can only build as many units as there is water allotted for the property to use because there's a water crisis here. Um, so what we're trying to say here is look, the gas is cost prohibitive for you because you can save money if you don't have to um, worry about the installation of piping natural gas, which is dangerous. And you have to pay a lot of money to tear up roads and all kinds of things. So that's already a cost savings. And then also you are limiting your, um, your carbon pollution, essentially. So you don't have to pay any fees later down the road. 
um, from, you know, firing of natural gas, which produces you know, methane and all kinds of things that are bad for the atmosphere. But then we take this a step further and we say, look, you have 58 units of water available. But if you are more efficient with that and you have a purple piping system and you use this reclaimed water for irrigation and we do efficient appliances, we can get you down to about um, half as much consumption levels, then you can have twice as many units. So in the case we looked at, suddenly the developer said, okay, I can make 58 apartments here, or I can make 99 by just being water efficient and trying out this uh, water reclamation system. So that's how we justify it. So save cost and also add additional revenue. Mm. And then that, that water reclamation system, um, I, I was cognizant of the Pure Water Monterey project. Now, is that something that would fall in line uh, with, with this uh, affordable housing uh, project? Or is that something completely entirely different? Um, I mean, it's completely entirely different, but it's also pretty similar <laughs> from my, <laughs> my general understanding of it. Um, Lawrence, you might be able, or Trang, if you're back, might be able to speak more on this. But from what I understand, that's water reclamation on a industrial scale. Mm. Um, so same principles, right? You take water that's been used and you turn it into potable water for people to use. Um, and potable this, or potable? <laughs> uh, I guess it depends on your accent. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I've always been curious about that one. <laughs> But for us, what what you do with uh, residential reclaimed water is you don't use it for drinking water afterwards um, because you need a much like uh, more sophisticated and, um, I guess, rigorous uh, processing system and to filter out any toxins to put into your body. So, but instead, what you do is you filter this water and you treat it, and there's a whole system, and the technology is pretty great. And then you can use that water for things like uh, laundry, landscaping, um, flushing toilets, um, all kinds of things that are really huge drains and waste of water that we use our perfectly good drinking water for just to flush away. And, and you had mentioned um, in the study that uh, instead of using a natural gas uh, heat pump tank, you could use also like a, an electric heat pump tank, correct? Yeah, that's just um, a change in, um, uh, I guess, hardware that you choose to stock the apartments with. Right. But yeah, anything uh, gas, there's an electric version, and they're usually more efficient. Now, is the is the gas tankless water heater, is that also for two apartments or just one? Um, those are just one because oh, wow. when you have the uh, gas tankless water heater, what it does is it's essentially like a box on the side of a unit and right. um, that's where the gas goes to and it's a little furnace and it will heat up the water outside. But you can't really share that um, like you can with um, a tank water heater. That's brilliant. Yeah, I, I noticed that little discrepancy there and in, in just switching from natural gas and heating your water uh, with the electric heat pump tank. That was that was really nice. That in um, all honesty, you know, in the long term, you know, and in the short term, it seems like the setup cost and, and then, you know, just 
energy efficiency costs, um, it's, it, it seems like a win-win, um, in terms of going with just the all electric design. And I know Lawrence was mentioning, um, I got a text from him this morning and he was so, so happy, so joyful about the PG&E switch. What was going on with that, Lawrence? What happened? Um, so this is just new. Yeah. Like uh, Angela said, news to me today, but the headline is that PG&E is the first gas and electric um, utility to publicly support California's all electric construction. And it's essentially, um, I, I haven't do- dove into the, into the details, but, um, you know, the big picture is that California has, you know, set pretty, um, aggressive climate goals, um, as well as goals to make their renew to make their electric grid um, fully renewable or carbon free by um, 2045. So the really cool thing about building electrification um, is it gets around one of the the issues that you have. If you you can have a perfectly clean grid, zero carbon, um, but if all of your built environment is still um, consuming, you know, carbon polluting natural gas, that's built into the system for for decades. Um, so if we can eliminate natural gas um, from new construction, um, design policies that help people um, retrofit the, the existing buildings that they have, uh, then with your super clean carbon-free grid, um, you're, you're serving all of your energy needs um, just through electricity. Um, and and there's definitely a case to be made and, and some really interesting policy um, you know, rabbit holes you can go down about the idea of renewable natural gas. Um, And there's some industries, you know, for example, in um, manufacturing and things like that, you might, um, it might be more difficult to transition away from natural gas, um, but that might be the the area in which um, renewable natural gas comes into play. Um, But for, as far as residential construction goes, uh, all electric is the future, particularly in California. And the fact that PG&E um, is stepping up to recognize that is a is a big deal. Now to play devil's advocate, uh, as an investor, taking a look at you know this high water efficiency all electric scenario, is there is there anything that you guys saw um, possibly as an assumption, but still you know a, a viable thing that might happen? Is is there anything that you guys saw that could potentially go wrong for investors with <laughs> going with the high water efficiency or all electric or? Are well, we, yeah, because it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's wrong. I like it. And, you know, something like this, you, you really have to think a lot about it. And um, a lot of times people don't like complexity when they're trying to make these kinds of financial decisions. Um, so to me, that really speaks to the business values of a developer. Right. Right, right. Going with the status quo. Well, like, isn't I, I was mentioning this to some of my conservative friends here in Texas, and they're like, well, isn't natural gas cheaper? And, um, you know, it, it's the kind of thing where, yeah, you, you do have to look at the complexity of it. And you have to look at the the, the, the going rates and, and value of retail gas and retail electricity. And, and just seeing those price projections and, and how are they estimated? over a period of time. Um, but as the study clearly shows, you know, over a period of time, um, the electricity rates, you know, and then having PG&E uh, as, a, as a big utility player in, in California, um, 
in support of this. You know, it's it, it clearly will provide, um, you know, uh, sufficient. Uh, how would you say, je ne sais quoi, um, solid investment opportunity, <laughs> if you will. Um, and, and then so moving forward with this kind of um, project uh, to, to bring it back to um, the systems that are in place or that could potentially be in place for this future development site in Monterey. Had you guys thought of any uh, stakeholders or any uh, potential players uh, for that um, project? Like what, like a stakeholder in water reclamation systems or PV systems or uh, full electri- electrification systems? Yeah, I mean, there's quite a few. Um, you know, my, my first thought goes to the city, right? Um, because the reason that the, the water reclamation system is so attractive is because the incentive to double your occupancy on a plot of land is crazy. You know, you can (laughs) double your revenue potential. Um, so they have, they have a lot to say, um, and as as stakeholders, they have a lot of importance, um, in the decision-making and, what's riding on this decision for them is, you know, having enough water to continue existing. Mm. And um, just to break down uh, another term that I was seeing here as a, as a potential question under the all electric scenario, what is a, a green premium? What does that mean? So green premium refers to, um, so green premium, right, is just the increased value of an assets because it is more environmentally friendly. Um, so if you take a, if you're a homeowner and you, so it's much more energy efficient, you put solar panels on top of it and you change out all the light bulbs to LEDs, um, you have increased the value of that property because now it's going to cost the future owner much less to run it. So you can charge a green premium and that's just that increased value when you sell your house oh wow nice that's can you guys hear me i can hear you crystal clear now oh, for the first oh time in forever trank welcome back i literally drive like i keep speaking and then you guys i would hear you guys talk over me i was like am i invisible right now what is going on um apparently i was but huh. um i um, was like in and out for a while i have some questions that i would like to answers if it hasn't been answered already um a couple is like the one on how we determine the increase in retail gas and electricity prices did you guys touch on that at all you can touch on that yeah that's cool okay okay cool (laughs) so (laughs) um so during our research um i uh learned that so every year pg and e has to submit to or like other utilities companies have to submit to the California Public Utilities Commission uh, what they call a general rate case agreements. So they seek approval of revenues for a certain period of time, like a couple of years usually, um, which justifies the rate at which they're going to raise their retail prices um, to address wildfire protection and maintenance costs and all that stuff um and so we use we took our change in um retail gas and electric electricity rates based on that general rate case agreements of pg&e 
But on top of that, if you go all electric, then tenants also save not only on this retail prices of energy, but they also save on the cost of carbon pollution permits that power plants, natural gas distributors. Um, who emit greenhouse gases have to buy every year in California's cap and trade market. So the price of carbon varies, and um, depending on how they clear up at auction, and we use this rising carbon price trajectory, um, which was determined by California Air Resources Board, I believe they model their middle range bro, um, projection is that it's gonna. Be as high as seventy one dollars by twenty thirty, so we use that to determine the extra saving that um, tenants and developers don't have to pay, given that the price of carbon is going to increase significantly in the next ten um, years or so. Yeah, and that's something that you can uh, tell your conservative friends in Texas you were talking to, Angela. Um, <laughs> yes, they're saving money, right? It, it is cheaper for now. Um, but <laughs> as stores of natural gas run out, the price is going to become more expensive as climate change is taken more and more seriously in all scales of government. And it will, as the effects are more and more pronounced, then the price to emit carbon is going to increase exponentially. And um, when you're planning for the built environment, like Lawrence was saying, these kinds of decisions that we make now are going to have real cost savings potential in the future. Yeah, and we're definitely hoping that um, the na the national country market will not just be limited to SO2 and NOx, but it will also grow to in include uh, CO2 in the future, and that's going to be a real game changer. Um, yeah. Now, is that something that those other emissions um, can you can can you also put those other emissions on a cap and trade system? Yeah, they are already. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. I'm so wet behind the ears. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, yeah. So, like, uh, for sulfur dioxide and nitrogen dioxide, um, these are with, you know, usually, like, power plants, um, most commonly coal plants, but also natural gas plants. There is an established cap-and-trade market, um, and they have to purchase permits to um, clean up their acts and to emit, and there's like already existing scrubber technology to get these emissions out of the atmosphere. So um, it's a pretty, pretty good system that's in the works already. And that that's on a state statewide basis or. State uh, I'm pretty sure there are different regions, right? Trang. Um, the sulfur dioxide is actually for the country for the natural, um, for the NOx, I think it varies by region. Like states can decide they want to opt in or not, but it's usually the case. Um, especially states in the Midwest tend to see a lot of intense smog pollution during the summer months, um, and I think a lot more states have enrolled in. And it's, it was a program that started in two thousand five. Mm, okay, and then and so while businesses and other stakeholders are cleaning up that uh emissions um where does the trade come in I, that's something that's like <laughs> what, what what incentive do i have as another country to take on another region or uh emissions what 
What, what does that do? Out of curiosity. So, like, where does the trade and the cap and trade come from? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so so think of it like um, if you just picture any kind of uh, like X Y uh, graph here. So uh, the cap is there's a limit on how much um, we'll say carbon dioxide is what we've been talking about. You can produce, and by you we mean like a country. So the country can only produce X amount. So, so that's the cap. That's the limit. And country the trade, <laughs> uh, yeah, for country you. Uh, country Angelo. So <laughs> Angelo gets to make X amount him, of carbon don't dioxide. Let that get to his head. Yeah, for real. <laughs> um, and that gives um, a price points, and there's an amount of permits that people can buy. So everyone goes out and they buy their permits. So what happens is the people where it's really easy for them to transition to more efficient uh, styles of business, they can reduce their carbon dioxide cheaply, they're going to do that. So they don't have to buy as many permits. So then they take their leftover permits and they trade them to bigger polluters that need them. So that way they have an incentive. So the bigger polluters still have an incentive to be more efficient, but they also have to pay more to be able to emit the carbon dioxide. But they never mm. exceed the cap that's already been placed. I see. That's that's built into that that permit that was traded? Right. So... The idea is to have this market mechanism where the people that can easily change their way of business so that they can reduce costs in the most efficient way possible that only they know will do so. And the people that can't will do what they can and then buy, but that's on an individual basis that can't really be uh, regulated at such an individual level. Right. So it's as if country Angelo can can determine whether or not this 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 permit that has been traded upon uh my country um is is feasible within our our system within our grid um and this is all happening within within country angelo right yeah so this is all within one country um, if you open and this that's... up to like a global carbon dioxide market, then that's different. <laughs> that's another story was on. <laughs> that's our dream. Yeah. Dream. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's where the international a... comes in. Yeah. That's what I just wish a... for for my birthday: a global cabin trace. <laughs> <laughs> to, if folks are interested in diving into a case study of all the things that we're talking about, the 1990 um, amendment to the Clean Air Act um, that was passed under Bush one's administration is uh, was came out to address um, acid rain and and the um, emissions that are associated with acid rain are sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxide. So um, and that's typically coming from the power sector, as Corbin mentioned, as well as um, tailpipe emissions from transportation. Um, but that's been seen as a as a wild success. So um, something that um, came up this is actually from a different class but um as a little caveat and a plug um this summer i read uh, the book called losing earth um by nathaniel rich and he essentially lays out the political history of the decade leading up to this decision um in the context of both climate change and acid rain um but essentially the the political history of how this all got passed um is really fascinating um and it's also really interesting that, you know, many of the sort of landmark um, environmental policy 
laws in the United States were passed by Republican administrations. Um, so just to put the, the historical plug out there that we have been able to work together in a bipartisan way around the environment. Um, and to some extent, it gives me hope to another extent. I remain cynical, but um, there is at least <laughs> historical precedent um, to coming together around what in my view should not be a bipartisan issue. But um, I think I may be digressing from, uh, from our project a bit, but I think uh, it's obviously all connected. So, Right, right. I mean, I think that's such an important point to look at our history and just have that built-in awareness, you know. Um, yeah, exactly. For public policy surrounding uh, environmental topics. And, um, you know, something that I really loved about, you know, your guys' study and, and taking a look at, you know, what we can do surrounding this discussion of policy, um, not only um, – you know, immediately within, you know, the Monterey context, but also, you know, on a national and international basis. I would, I would love to give you that uh, birthday wish, Trang. I mean, that sounds like a great, <laughs> <laughs> great system, um, however complex it may be. But, you know, getting back to Monterey and, you know, seeing the potentiality of this development site at Garden Road and how, this is where uh, the city uh, could step in and say, like, instead of for investors on the private sector, just meeting the bare minimum of 20 percent um, to really just zone that part off as 100 percent affordable housing only and taking that direct action. Um, do you do you think that that's something that um, would provide enough incentives for developers? I think I think our paper really proves that you can go 100% affordable and still be able to make that profit you're looking for. And I think it's something that the Monterey, the city of Monterey, or even the larger counties really take because if we talk about the business side of building a development project that just costs a couple million of dollars like this, like I think people in these kind of transactions would tap into the connections, the network that they already built over the years. So I'm thinking like even contractors or developers that are hired doing um, government buildings, for instance, um, would have to be like trusted contractors that I've used over the year. And I feel like going all electric, having a developer and contractor that can do all electric is something so new that, Maybe people know about it, although we would argue that education is the biggest piece that's missing for more all-electric projects to be happening right now. But I also think trust is a huge part of it. And if the government doesn't take the step to build trust in a different, to build trust within um, a circle that values sustainability, um, then you will never see investors and making this jump themselves. Because this is a lot of money being moved, um, and I feel like all electric is a feel or it's a ram that people haven't really considered, and it might be too far away from their comfort zone to actually invest in. Right, and you you can kind of see how this also plays into the social benefits, and um, not uh, not disproving 
you know, the environmental benefits built in um, as well. But, but, but getting back to the initiative that state of California has been making with their uh, legislative analyst office, they were talking about how they estimate that in addition to a hundred and 140,000 housing units, California is projected to build annually. The state would also have to be built um, as many as a hundred thousand additional units. Right. And, you know, mm-hmm. as a city uh, in California, this it would behoove them to consider that, you know, if you want to address uh, the construction of more affordable housing, you know, to, to zone this off as a unique opportunity for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 99, 99 units. That's that's quite a, a lot of units. That's what was it? Um, I want to say a little over at least 300 more affordable units. Uh, there was a mandate in, in, in the city uh, by 2023, um, so that would definitely, you know, cover at least a third of their of their scenario by 2023 uh, with this with this project. Um, you know, so we've covered a lot here in terms of talking about uh, affordability, feasibility, comparing that to the different scenarios. And the different uh, functions, you know, in terms of how are we going to power these apartment complexes? How are um, we going to create? We touched on the affordable housing aspects of it. So, you know, to conclude, I, I really love y'all's last four bullet points, and I'll, I'll just go ahead and mention them, and then I would love to hear you guys's. Um, thoughts you know since since um producing this this wonderful document um and that is the the four big state policies and further research that you guys are in support of are uh, one is electrifying the state building code uh two the statewide building decarbonization goals uh going ahead into incentivizing that and and uh meeting that uh, three, increasing funding to local energy efficiency programs. Uh, Lawrence, you know, you, you've been working on that and, and mentioned that earlier. And then, of course, what, what all is on every single graduate student's mind when they get out of uh, graduate school is jobs, right? Is, is getting people back to work and doing it in a way that mobilizes action on climate change. So, um you know, again, this is a, a fantastic project, and, and I'm glad you guys are adding to the body of literature. Um, and, you know, without further ado, I, I'll just go one by one, um, seeing what are you guys' uh, final thoughts on this project, and what do you see uh, this taking off and continuing? What I see here is showing that you can be sustainable and profitable. And we really need pioneers to go out and make that happen and to prioritize sustainability. Um, Part of the reason we did uh, the sensitivity analysis that you asked about was to see um, how our solution of 100% affordable would compare with um, the business as usual scenario. And the margins are so close at this point that the business case really needs to be um, supplemented by really strong business ethics. And uh, that's something that I think that the city of Monterey and um, 
students at Miss and pretty much anyone out there can really bring to the table as they go forward. And then in terms of, uh, of those ethics, what, what, what are those tenets uh, that you, you think are important? So the, the really like traditional um, model of this is the three P's, right? So people, planet, profit. You want to have all three of those there. You can't sacrifice the well-being of humans and the environment for increased profits. But also, if you have an initiative that sounds really cool, it's great for the community, it's great for the outdoors, but then it's not making any money, it's probably going to fail as well. So those are the three things that you have to balance. And generally, the way that the economy has been operating on is just take, make, waste. So, you know, it's the endless drive for profits and everything else falls by the wayside. Mm, okay. I, I see how that contrasts. And, and, I mean, not to paint a black and white image, right? I mean, there are complexities that are built into... You know, uh, I, I, I know that you guys had mentioned in the study that, you know, this um, this works in this region. Right. And and the environment plays a role in terms of how much sun it comes into the into the picture of, you know, providing providing energy as well. Um, so it's, it's kind of like, you know, seeing the feasibility within this context and then seeing that, oh, it actually works. And the numbers are so closely aligned to the status quo that i mean it, it, it's a no-brainer you know to go with um with this new approach um for for developing um lawrence what, what are your final thoughts on on the study moving forward yeah and uh i would be remiss to not uh shout out professor professor garish Ramali, um who was the uh our, our guiding force in this project um, he's a professor at miss and also works at stanford and then Sean Armstrong of Redwood Energy, who is a, he's a developer himself and, and is one of the pioneers in this space who we reached out with a, with a cold email and he was, um, you know, gave an hour and a half of his time for a conversation to kind of provide um, some of the consulting work that went into our study, um, as well as uh, Kimberly Cole, the community development director uh, at the city of Monterey. Um, but to your point about sort of the policy landscape going forward um, in, in between when we um, put this paper out there and, and now it's been about a month. And in the meantime, I've um, learned more about um, really cool um, programs that Monterey Bay community power has put forth. And they did so um, right in the middle of the pandemic um, did two really interesting programs that, that align um, kind of exactly with this project. One is the, uh, they had a reach code incentive program, um, which was designed to incentivize um, Monterey Bay community power jurisdictions to adopt reach codes. And what that means is uh, codes that um, eliminate or um, to some degree, um, you know, reduce the amount of uh, natural gas in new construction. Um, and then they also offered a program, um, which was essentially a, a grant program. Um, to incentivize um, all electric construction here in Monterey. And they put that program out there. And, and that same day, um, something like $1.3 million um, was, uh, was used up um, for the grant program. And so the, um, you know, obviously, I think oftentimes in the public policy space, we, we think about government's role, but, you know, of course, the, 
the utilities um, have a huge role to play in this. And the fact that Monterey Bay Community Power is this new community choice energy agency, um, it's it, you know established locally to source carbon-free electricity for, for Monterey, San Benito, Santa Cruz, and now parts of um, San Luis Obispo County, um, it's they're really on the cutting edge of um, putting programs out there that incentivize um, building um, all electric. Um, and so it's, it's exciting, honestly, to live in a city and to live in an area where, where these things are happening, as well as to be, you know, a graduate student um, studying it. So I'm encouraged um, by the work. Um, and I'll just say one last thing to the, to the point about the pandemic, seeing as I, you know, brought it up and, um, you know, also the, uh, the idea that um, we, you know, we lost, according to a Los Angeles Times article that was put out in, in like mid-May, something like 600,000 green jobs in the U.S. because of the pandemic um, and 100,000 of those jobs here in California. So we as a society, I think, need to really take a step back um, and rethink where it is we want to put um, our emphasis, um, whether that's private industry or government. Um, and, and, you know, in many ways, the pandemic has allowed us to kind of, you know, I guess in the best sense of, of what's happened during the pandemic is to maybe take a, depth, a, a breath. Um, I've been telling myself to take deep breaths often to, to get through the anxiety of, of living in this moment. Um, not to mention, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement that surrounds us right now um, and the, you know, the societal anxiety that people of color and, and, and black people have felt um, not really, you know, being included often in the environmental movement. Um, and, you know, that, that's a whole nother conversation that I think we need to have. But essentially what I, what I would advocate for is California to put an emphasis on getting folks back to work um, with green jobs. Right. That's, that's such a powerful statement, um, Lawrence, in terms of, you know, when we, when we, <laughs> it's funny how this is, but, you know, when we consider environmental aspects of, of life, you know, and, and how it applies to society, it, it's, it goes hand in hand, right? And in terms of creating these, these units, you know, affordable housing units, and, and who's going to be living in them? And how is it going to positively impact their lives? Um, so yeah, you're, you're 100% on the mark um, with the synergy there the interconnectedness um trang um i love you are the last i know i i love all the positive sentiments that's been talked about and i think i'm gonna tackle it from a more critical angle um i attended a panel (laughs) damn it trang i was hoping (laughs) it's trying times and i'm trying to push us in the most you know critical way possible <laughs> um, thank you Trey. i attended i attended this panel it's called local natural gas emission reduction options and it was really cool in that they put um people who represent different organizations that might have different um interests in um removing natural gas from the home so there was people from air quality management districts uh, from different California cities, but there were also Southern California gas company representatives who were still defending um, natural gas, saying that investment in renewable gas, natural gas um, 
can be a good way to hold off this like California pathway to net zero um, by providing by not um, by not by considering people who don't have the means to switch to all electric but that their way of saying that like buying time to invest in options are so obviously not gonna benefit the environment nor the people um especially during this covid time that we learned we learned that air pollution is linked to higher covid deaths and indoor unlike outdoor air pollution the air inside our homes is very unregulated <laughs> policymakers don't really look into it researchers don't look into it as american we spend so much time inside a home and we have no idea what we're breathing in we have no idea what about the as- the atmospheres where we spend the majority of our day and it's just I mean, I have an air filter, but you know, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I, you know, like I would, I want to throw out. I read this article in the New Yorker, so the hidden air pollution in our homes, and it's a very cool project. So, at the University of Texas, um, Uver- University of Texas in Austin, they actually have this model home where they conduct, um experiments about indoor air pollution so they like cook up like a thanksgiving meal and have all these fancy giant machines to calculate um to measure the carbon dioxide readings and then the um particulate matter readings and i don't even want to get into it but the number was insanely high and would have some crazy cognitive effects that it was really disturbing to read actually um, yeah, especially <laughs> if you have a gas stove, like a lot of us do, you know, and that's not a our lot fault, of us right? Do. We came into this infrastructure. Um, that is right. true, but it doesn't mean that we should settle for it. And I'm just, I just really hope that more research is going to come out on this front and policymakers have to wake up and see that removing natural gas from the home is a health and equity issue that lower income families are living in houses where their the developers are not don't see the incentives in switching out of gas stoves and how that have very horrible health effects on adults, children and that's something we have to address and that's something my I personally um wanna see or potentially wanna be involved in the process and finding out more about the link between health and, you know, what kind of energy we decided to use within our homes. So, yeah, that's for me. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Environmental justice is social justice. We don't necessarily need that distinction there. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And, I mean, just when you were saying that, Trey, I I was thinking about the, the, the Clean Air Act um, and, and, you know, setting that precedent and, which was like a, a pioneering effort, you know, in terms of legislation and just how that still, I mean, you can take that act and, and, and revise it, you know, on, as a legislative piece and um, really sh- start to shape. You guys are, you know, provided a lot of forward thinking on this. Uh, and I, I have to, you know, hats off to you three both for, for 
you know, reaching out to policymakers and, and, and people in the field. Um, Lawrence, I, I know you mentioned Monterey County uh, Power. What, what was the name of that power company? Yes. Sorry, I, I kind of threw that in at the last moment. It's the Monterey Bay Community, Community Power. Power. Yeah. Right. And they're they're I've heard of them before. They're they're doing a lot of great work in terms of energy efficiency, mm-hmm. correct? Tot- yeah, yeah. And they so essentially they um they PG and E retains the traditional role as the power delivery um you know, sort of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh in Monterey Bay community power guarantees that if you're a customer that you're receiving um uh renewable energy. Um, and, and to be honest, it's, um, they're, a, uh, a nonprofit, a group that I really want to learn more about. And I'm excited that they, you know, that they're, um, that, that we have one here in Monterey. Um, the, the sort of common term for what they are, is called a community choice aggregator. Um, also a community choice energy agency. Um, so they're popping up, um, around the country. There's, there are many in California, there are some in Illinois, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, um, but it's sort of a, you know, it's a, it's a new um, organization and a new way to provide, to connect customers with, um, with renewable energy. Yeah. And that, that, that goes in, um, it's interesting, right? Because like, does that mean that like a community or a city or a county can decide single-handedly like they want to go with that community choice provider as opposed to like a utility company yeah so to my not so (laughs) you you opt in right like when i moved to monterey i actually didn't do it i had i got a flyer in the mail and it was like do you want to join monterey bay community power or do you want to do pg&e and i was like (laughs) i've never heard of monterey bay community power (laughs) um and i actually uh we went with BG&E due to a lack of like, you know, here I am an environmental policy student and I chose to not go with the renewable energy, uh, you know, option, which I guess goes to show that even, you know, you and can have, yeah, ex- <laughs> thank you. Exactly. Right. Like here I am pretending to be, or, you know, hoping to be one of the, the more aware you know professionals out there and and i still happen to make the wrong choice so, hey i don't think it's um, your fault i think Monterey Bay community power needs to up their marketing game and <laughs> develop they just have to deliver the message like straight up <laughs> well for me at least um in defense of them right they they had the default option switched around so i was just automatically enrolled in monterey bay community Ooh. power unless i wanted to opt out so that is where it's at uh corbin that default technique uh yeah because then i would have had to chose P- i would have had to have chosen pg e um but to my knowledge i'm trying to remember a year back when i first moved in here um but so in a in a future world um let's say 20 2040 right after kanye has had several terms <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh just kidding uh oh, but God. you know it's it's it to be on this forward thinking momentum in this conversation something that you know I, i've been thinking is is this something that you know do you guys see the potentiality for a paradigm shift you know with all electric um development sites you know uh, not not only in the state of california but 
but uh, you know, across across the nation. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I really like hope so. <laughs> See, you guys I, got used to me speaking first, so I waited on purpose. <laughs> and, uh... No, it's good to practice. Uh, yeah, it's good to be aware, right? Step up, step back. Um, I absolutely. I mean, I think that's our. Not only, not only do I think it's necessary, but in our paper specifically, I mean, we make the business case, and I think once you've got, um, you know, we live in a capitalist society and once the numbers start talking um you know people are going to start following that so perceptions will change yeah and i mean i think that's what's so exciting about our results was that um you know that the the finances do line up for all electric and more and more we're seeing that not just on you know we we focus specifically on monterey but we looked at a lot of literature done by the state government done by uh, rocky mountain institute um and other folks out there who are starting, you know, we're right at the beginning of, um, but it, but it's, but I see it trending that way that, you know, electric electricity is the future. Um, and the sooner we embrace that, I think the, the the better off we're going to be. Yeah. And I think, again, I I just want to say like marketing is going to be a huge piece because education, you got just, you just have to tell people that this is an option that they can have. Like when people look for housing, they can start demanding, like, I want to be in a building that ha- is all electric. I don't want to have gas stoves in my home. And once you start telling people that this is an option that you can't have, um, we'll see more and more of it. Like, maybe you don't have to, maybe next, you know, when you're on Zillow, it doesn't say just, like, a pet-friendly apartment. It's going to say, like, all electric. Just putting that there, yes. just add something, um, just add another option for people and you know we love options and all electric is something that i see because we're the future tenants a young educated people care about the environment like we're we're gonna be future tenants and we're gonna ask for these things and if developers don't meet that then sorry like we're not opening our purse like lawrence always say (laughs) (laughs) Gotta put your money where your mouth is. Yeah, and I think, in a, you know, and obviously not just for graduate students, but for anybody, you, choices need to be made simple, right? They need to be made. And, and, and Corbin actually, you know, the, the concept of having your default setting be green, be renewable, I think that is a huge shift that we could make that would be, you know, it's, it's, it's simple, right? It's, you know, it's, it's the idea um, that you have to opt into dirty energy or opt out of clean energy what you know who would want to check the box to say yeah actually can you please give me some some coal powered coal powered energy i'll have that please (laughs) versus you know clean renewable solar or wind so it's once these defaults start shifting once the paradigms start shifting um that's that's when big you know that's when big change can happen When you have electric grids powered by flowers, call it back at me. Right? And they'll smell really good. 
No, I, I heard the, the coal, coal flower, and I was like, oh, man. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bunch of coal flowers everywhere. <laughs> it's a whole field of coal flowers. It's great. <sighs> well, that'll definitely go into the outtakes, fam. Coal um, <laughs> flowers. <laughs> coal flowers. That sounds like a meadow I do not want to be a part of. <laughs> no, definitely not. No picnics there. <laughs> How's everything going with you guys? I, I think we're, we've made... Uh, a fantastic conversation piece out of this for sure yeah do you think you have all the material you need to work with from this si si se puede si senor yo there's so much uh, so many different directions with this because I feel like we tackled so much in one we were like trying to do it all and I mean the more we discuss this the more I'm like wow there's like 12 more conversations that we could have that like spin off of <laughs> all the different directions like you know the not to mention the social justice piece and every like it's whew, it's a lot mm-hmm. it is i mean that's that's why i love talking to you guys um I, i've had a multiplicity of conversations um with environmental students and like it just goes on these like wonderful tangents that uh <laughs> You know, like dance into different uh, spheres of, of of influence, really. You know, and, and all the stakeholders are involved. Um, so you know, from the government to nonprofit sector to you know businesses to to banks. You know, I'm I'm, I'm staying here in uh, Houston, Texas, and I, I have a a friend of mine who's looking to be like a future loan officer at at his his father's bank. And I'm like, that's interesting. I, I was just reading this piece. And I was like, do you know what NPR and uh, IIR stand for? <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah. I'm like, okay, well, um, I want you to look at this study, you know, and tell me what you think. And he's like, wow. So like, and he asked me. He legitimately asked me. He looked at me like, conservative is all hell. And he looked at me and was like, is this the future? Oh. <laughs> what? He didn't even and know. I'm like, <laughs> He didn't even know. <laughs> Yo, yeah, get all the conservative bankers on board. And another kind of interesting take on this too, right, is um, the industry that has quantified that they have the most to lose immediately from climate change is the financial industry. Yep. And the financial industry, a lot of that is based on like real estate. Um, for financial activity and investment properties. So when word gets out that these kinds of things are doable and they can be, um, you know, the ones that advocate for uh, electrification and more environmentally friendly building practices, then there's a lot of negotiating power there that can see a lot of change happen quickly. So that's one other thing I'm hopeful for. I find negotiating power is Corbin's favorite word these days. <laughs> Say that all the time. It's <laughs> how you gotta think about these things, you know? Oh, True. yeah. All of this is a negotiation. Um, also, just a plug, but <laughs> I'm doing overly, overall, I'm doing great, but um, if you've seen on the news lately, international students is getting kicked out. Um, if their school is doing online, including Miss, so there's really high chance I won't be staying in the States this upcoming fall. And yeah. if you're concerned, friends, uh, classmates, 
who are from another country, please go on petitions.whitehouse.gov and sign this petition called Allowing International, International Students to Stay in the U.S. and Finish Their Degree and sign it with your name. That would be extra helpful in keeping us here in Monterey and continue doing the great work on sustainability that I'm trying to do. <laughs> Yeah, just trying yeah. to make, you know, this a better country. So yeah, should be able to really. stay. <laughs> yeah, we would not have been able to do this project without you, Turing. And we need you to be right here and not go anywhere. Thank you, friends. Please. I'll fight to my last breath. <laughs> Por favor. <laughs> well, good. Yeah, I would love to sign this petition. And um, yeah, I mean, this this country was founded on people from all walks of life, from different countries and yeah no that's that's a hundred percent um hundred percent on that hundred percent on affordable housing you get a hundred percent you get a hundred percent everybody gets you guys get a's for today uh, <laughs> i'll take so it thank you so much um I'll, I'll definitely be in touch between now and um when i wrap up editing uh if you guys have any cool pictures that you guys took during this project that you want to send me um I, I oh usually... do we <laughs> oh no <laughs> we may or may not have done a full photo shoot um oh my god yeah you'll see <laughs> sweet, sweet yeah i i usually like to get creative with the cover art for, for each episode so excellent and then of course you know you can pass it along to friends family colleagues yeah um that'd be yeah. great thank you thank you for making this recording yeah thanks for having us angela such a painful experience on my end, but thank you for putting up with having three <laughs> people on your podcast. I'm sure that's the first. <laughs> yeah. This is pretty this is pretty sweet. They keep yeah. showing that to bankers yeah, too. True. I like that. <laughs> yeah, for real. Keep pass around this to all the bankers. <laughs> gladly, gladly. Well y'all take care and um I'll be in touch. All right, you, you too. All right. Signing off. Bye Thanks. guys. <laughs>